This is my story, but it could be yours. The Outline World Dispatch. It's Wednesday, August 23rd, 2017. I'm Joshua Topolsky. Today on The Dispatch, Jeff Ahaza on Jay-Z's ultimate, total, complete control. He's not going to let, you know, the Times or the fate or any of us profit off of his story. And Gabby Del Valle on millennials and money. They're really chasing this market of millennials who are afraid of debt. Here's The Dispatch. Culture. This past Friday, Jay-Z did a rare interview in an episode of the podcast Rap Radar, which is hosted by veteran music journalist Elliot Wilson and Brian B. Miller. The whole point is you got hurt because this guy was talking about you on a stage. But what really hurt me, my, you can't bring my kids and my, my wife into it. Interestingly, the series was recently brought to title the streaming service that Jay-Z bought in 2015. The interview made Jeff Ahaza, our writer, ask the question, what does it mean for an artist to so completely control their media narrative? Jeff, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me on. Let's talk about this Jay-Z situation. The Jay-Z situation. What's going on here? So Jay-Z released his album 444 at the end of June through one of his favorite methods, which is an exclusive deal with a phone company. So users of Tidal, and that means users who had signed up for Tidal before June 30th when the album came out, they had normal access to the record. But if you wanted to sign up for Tidal specifically to listen to 444, you couldn't do so unless you had a Sprint phone. That's insane. It's a very... (laughs) I think, you know, Jay-Z has been trying to take title off the ground in more ways than one for several years now. And I think one of the things they ran into was people, you know, getting title very quickly just to listen to the new Kanye record or the new Beyonce record and then quickly dropping off. So I guess that was a way of combating that. But it sort of points to Jay-Z's overall ethos as a businessman and musician, which is kind of treating the music and treating every aspect of the artist self as a product to be profited from in one way or another. Okay, so how does this podcast come into the picture? So after releasing the record, the fact that it was so personal kind of led to, as these things often do, kind of splinters outside. So he mentions Kanye West, who famously went on stage in Sacramento. I was hurt. Beyonce, I was hurt. Made all these claims about Jay-Z and Beyonce and the kids and this and that. He talks about, you know, he makes a little reference to the rapper Future about how his parental situation is blown up by the public. He makes references to O.J. Simpson. He makes references to, you know, different young rappers on Instagram. He also makes references to his own marriage. So he's kind of created this whole universe within the record, and he isn't talking to anyone. He's not talking to the Times. He's not doing the big New Yorker profile or whatever. So this interview that happened on the Rap Radar podcast was really the first time any of those issues that had kind of blown up since the record came out could be addressed. Reconciliation, like how did you and Solange get to a better place? We all saw what happened in the elevator private yeah. moment, but how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, like, yeah, we've always had a great relationship. Right. You know what I mean? I fought, I fought my brothers and like argued my brothers my whole life. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Just so it happened who we are, these things go into a different space, but right. it ain't nothing. We've never, we've had one uh, disagreement ever mm. before and after we've been cool. And so, and so what's interesting about this is that Jay-Z is taking this kind of total control of his career from how he releases albums 
to obviously the very personal nature of those albums to when I talk about this record and when I talk about the issues on the record, I'm only going to speak about those issues to people that I basically give my blessing to. And through a, an avenue, which I essentially own and control. Basically, he's not going to let, you know, the times or the fate or any of us profit off of his story. He said, you know, this is mine and I'm going to tell it. So, so yeah. So what is a music journalist's job in this new world? That's, that's an interesting question. And I think several people in music journalism have pointed out that, you know, for example, music reviews have gotten much less cutting in the past five to 10 years because the relationship to the artist is so important. There was the case of Chance the Rapper having an, a disagreement with an MTV news writer because of something he wrote about him. So I think it is an interesting time when we we as music journalists or journalists in general, I feel like this is happening, we just don't have as much of that power anymore. There's no reason to have to talk to us. And I think things like Jay-Z's title interview kind of prove that point. You know, everyone covered everything he said in it far and wide because he's Jay-Z. So it just begs the question, you know, does some nerd need to come to his house and interview him, and do we lose anything if they don't? But isn't this the dream for so long that artists have had about taking power away from these record labels and these marketing machines that are basically all about shaping their image, sometimes out of their control? Mm -hmm. Is this, I mean, isn't there a positive side? I mean, obviously for a fan, I think it can be frustrating, but for Jay-Z, it must feel amazing. I'm sure it feels great for Jay-Z. And I think it points to a broader question of who is going to control the media that we consume down the line. Is this going to be the model for all interesting and powerful people to say, well, I'm the celebrity who is now the president of the United States and I have a publication that I specifically only speak to. It seems like a dynamic that is kind of trickling down into everything thanks to social media. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. It is sort of the promise, but perhaps the danger now of giving people such a, an enormous control over their public persona. Well, I think one of the things about the internet that people, especially the, the more idealistic people, tend to to leave out or, or forget is the power dynamics in the real world still exist online. So we're not all going to start our own streaming platforms. I, if I want to be an independent musician, I don't think I'm going to get to just like own a platform. Should we should artists have that much control? Should every celebrity be able to control the magazine that talks about them? There's an argument in a lot of ways for a more complicated answer than yes or no. Power. Okay, so apparently there is a startup that wants to give loans to millennials, specifically millennials, for things like expensive shoes. And I assume gold fidget spinners, the company's called Affirm. Our real-life millennial writer, Gabby Del Valle, wrote about them. And she's here to talk about whether it's good, bad, or somewhere in the middle. Gabby, thank you for being here. Thanks, Josh. All right, so how did you first hear about Affirm? Where did this, how did this uh, make its way onto your uh, radar? This reporter named Susie Cagle tweeted about these pants that you can buy that are $400, but you can pay for them with an easy monthly payment over three, six, or 12 months, and those payments are basically subprime loans. Explain to me how these are like subprime loans. A firm's entire thing is that they provide loans for people who are, quote, underserved or not served by FICO. So 
people who don't necessarily qualify for a credit card or a personal loan because their credit history is young or because their credit score is low or because they don't have a good enough income to buy this, whatever it is that they're buying. Pants. Yeah, to buy these pants, sure, can in some cases be approved for these loans that don't check their credit scores. They do a soft credit check instead of a hard credit check and rely on, um, according to them, a host of public and privately available information. And the interest rates are really high. They range from 10% to 30%, and the average interest rate is 21%. That's pretty high. That's very high. These are people who would not, in all likelihood, qualify necessarily or have the credentials for a traditional personal loan. In some cases, yes, and in other cases, they're really chasing this market of millennials who are afraid of debt and are afraid of credit cards because they grew up during and after the recession and they saw people's houses get taken away and like people run up these insane credit card bills. So these people are afraid of debt and they're afraid of credit, and a firm is basically rebranding debt and credit to make it seem ethical and friendly. Okay, so let's back up a second. Where does a firm come from? Who's Who are the founders? How did this company get started? A firm was founded in 2012 by Max Levchin, who's one of the co-founders of PayPal and who also co-founded Yelp. And they say that their entire thing is that credit and debt are super complicated and there's a lot of hidden fees and, and they want to make it more transparent and ethical for people. So let's take a closer look with Max Levchin. He's the CEO of a firm. You are bringing transparency and democratization to credit. Uh, how's it working? It's great. Uh, it's pretty unbelievable what we can do if you just stay honest and keep honest. And they're selling themselves as this ethical company that's an alternative for millennials who don't want credit cards and don't trust big banks. One of the talking points they have on their fact sheet is that 71% of millennials would rather go to the dentist than listen to anything big banks have to say. But one of their big backers is Morgan Stanley, a very big bank. There is millennials are, would rather, 71% of millennials would rather go to the dentist than, than... Listen to anything big banks have to say. That doesn't it's make really any... It's a really weird... It's a very it's strange... It's a really weird stat. It's a really weird what stat. What if a big bank is like, I want to tell you that you're good looking and cool <laughs> and I really like you. I feel like I would rather have that than a trip to the dentist, personally. I, think, I like going to the dentist. I mean, do we have data on... Do, we, do you have data on millennial habits around credit cards? A firm has their own fact sheet, which is a compilation of a bunch of data on credit cards and millennials. And 63% of millennials don't have credit cards and 44% aren't interested in credit in any way because they're afraid of it. It's not that they necessarily can't get credit. It's that they're literally just afraid of being in debt. So just to be clear, we have somehow raised a generation of people who are worried about credit card debt, averse to taking on too much credit card debt or any credit card debt at all. And a firm is essentially exploiting that fear by making it part of this like kind of frictionless checkout process. Yeah, absolutely. There's all this research and all these old people who are wondering like, why do millennials love to buy avocado toast if they have no money? Why do you have 29 credit cards if you're not saving for the future? And what they're really trying to understand is how can we get these people to buy a bunch of our shit in a way that continues to make us money? And a firm figured that out. So what do you recommend for people who really want the pants? Save money until you can buy your pants. I think that's sound advice. 
That's it for The Dispatch. We're here every morning, Monday through Thursday. You can subscribe in your favorite podcast app or by going to theoutline.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Joshua Topolsky, and you are presumably not. <laughs>